morning. So, um, does anyone here, just asking, know what um, these three words are trying to communicate? Don't shout it out. Um, you can raise your hand if you have some idea of what information those three words are trying to communicate. Does anybody have? Oh, Kristen, you do because I told you. Yeah, you guys were in the office. I get it. Okay. Well, uh, you're not alone, and we'll reveal this to you in, in just uh, a minute or so. I, I recently saw a story on the news that was fascinating. It was about a, a married couple from Austin, Texas, who went to um, England for vacation. And they were walking along the beach one day in England when suddenly her husband um, fell to the ground unconscious. So she pulled out her cell phone to call for emergency services, but she didn't know what town she was in. And the call, the emergency call center didn't know where they were either. How, how, were, how was her husband going to be saved if no one knew where to send the first responders? Well, you might say, yeah, GPS. You could, find, you could do it with GPS. But apparently there's an English uh, entrepreneur who has come up with a way that yielded uh, results a little more quickly. Chris Sheldrick and his team divided the world into 57 trillion, 57 trillion three-meter squares. And then they assigned three of a possible 40,000 words to each of those three-meter squares. They developed an app. The app was called What Three Words? What Three Words? By uh, tapping into this app that she had on her phone, the woman whose husband lay unconscious on the beach was able to direct the ambulance to her exact location within three meters. She says it saved her husband's life. So, for example, in case you ever want to know what this space is right here, this three meter squares, those are the three words. Porch, picking, sang. No idea why those three words. It's just random, I suppose, but this is where I am. These ten square feet, no other three meter square in the entire world has the same three words. This got me thinking. When it comes to our lives and our relationships with Christ and where we are, what three words would I use to describe where I am? What three words would you use to describe where you are in your relationship with Christ? What three words? Put another way, where are you in your journey toward Christiformity? That is, having Christ formed in you, as the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 4.19. Where are you and where do you want to go? What three words would describe for you where you are right now? And what three words do you hope will describe you, say, when we get to the year 2022, which we're now looking forward to almost as much as we look forward to the year 2021? Maybe you're tired, bored, apathetic. Maybe you're curious or you're anxious or you're hungry for God. Maybe you, you hope by the end of this year, to be peaceful, faithful, and bold. What three words? Now, my guess is that most of us would need a lot more than three words to describe where we are. But you get my drift. Who, who are we, and where do we hope to go? Now, who are we is one thing. It's a personal thing. It's an individual thing. You're probably the only person who can answer that question for yourself, who you are. But who we want to be, who we wish we were, we can, as people who name the name of Jesus and seek to follow Jesus, we have some help with that. 
As the author of 1 John 4.17 puts it, our goal is to be like Jesus in the world. To be like Jesus in the world. This week we begin a 12-week sermon series focused on our ECC touchstone of transformation. And by transformation we mean that we hope, we desire, we intend to provide the resources and the relationships so that each of us may move forward in our journey from curiosity about Christ to Christiformity, having Christ fully formed in us. Jesus' primary message on life lived as God designed it to be lived, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, is all about this journey. Jesus himself calls his words in these three chapters of the Gospel of Matthew a foundation for life, the rock in which we build our houses. You may notice that we're starting this series at the end of Jesus' teaching. You haven't missed it. We're just starting at the end. Matthew 7, verses 24 to 27, are Jesus' last words in the sermon in this section, but they show us, they teach us how we are to read the message. So we're beginning at the end. We're using Jesus' words on the proper foundation for life as our foundation for understanding the Sermon on the Mount. What do I mean by that? Down through the centuries... Uh, There have been a few different approaches of how we are supposed to read, interpret, and apply the Sermon on the Mount. These three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. One of the most popular ones that I've run into several times is that Jesus is laying out for us the perfectly lived life, knowing full well that it is impossible for us human beings to live that life out, so that we will know how badly we need Jesus and how badly we need the grace of God. This mindset would turn us into what the late Dallas Willard would call Vampire Christians. Vampire Christians. Christians who only want Jesus for his blood. That is, we only want Jesus, we only need Jesus to be a part of our life to the extent that his blood, his death on the cross, has saved us and forgiven us and taken us to heaven when we die. And to be clear, Jesus' death and resurrection do indeed accomplish this for us. And that's good news, but I have more good news. I have more good news, and this good news is going to serve as our primary good news throughout this 12-week series. There may be others that pop up along the way, but this is, a, this is the foundational good news. And the good news is this. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus empower us to live purposefully and abundantly in God's kingdom here, now, and forever. The life The death and the resurrection of Jesus empower us to live purposefully and abundantly in God's kingdom here, now, and forever. As I said, Jesus' words about building on the right foundation are the foundation of how we're going to interpret and respond to the Sermon on the Mount. Right after Jesus finishes the sermon, Matthew adds these words. We didn't hear these read earlier. Uh, Chapter 7, verse 28 through chapter 8, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. First of all, I want us to take note of something. Back in Matthew 5, verses 1 and 2, just before Jesus begins to teach, we read this. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, the crowds who have gathered because of the healing that took place in the passage right before this, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. In the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus very clearly was teaching his disciples, his first followers. But now, at the end of Jesus' sermon, crowds are amazed at his teaching. 
Crowds have been listening all along, and now large crowds follow, after, follow him after he's preached these things. After he's preached these challenging and difficult things, large crowds are amazed at his teaching, and they follow him. It does not say that the crowds were disappointed at Jesus' words, that they walked away, that they threw their hands up in the air and said, we can't do this, this is ridiculous, why bother? No, they were amazed by it. All these difficult things that we find in the Sermon on the Mount that people for centuries have tried to explain away, this crowd was amazed by it. They heard in it the ring of authority, and they wanted it. They found it attractive. It's something they hunger for. It's something that amazes them. On some still unfolding level, these crowds know that in Jesus' words, there is a way forward to a life of purpose, intention, and abundance. Their interpretation is, was, at least in part, that this life Jesus is describing can be lived in the here and now. This life Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount can be lived in the here and now as well as in the hereafter. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus empower us to live purposefully and abundantly in God's kingdom here, now, and forever. In him, we have been given a way to live, a model to imitate, and the power to follow through. In Christ, we have been given a way to live, a model to imitate, and the power to follow through by the Spirit residing within us. If, if we back up and we look at Jesus' closing words in this message about life, he, he tells those crowds, he tells his disciples, and he tells us today just what we are supposed to do with these three chapters. Should we put them aside as only attainable in heaven sometime in the future? Should we write them off as an impossible idea that isn't practical, it's something that, that, that is there just to show us that we can't do this and we have to depend on the grace of God um, we're going to fail all the time. Is this only a teaching about life in the hereafter, or is it meant to teach us something more, something good and beautiful and true about this life in the here and now as well? Jesus concludes his teaching, beginning in verse 24 of chapter 7. Therefore, <clears throat> everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down. The streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Do you want to live in a house that will stand, or do you want to live in a house that is on the verge of collapsing in on itself? <clears throat> Two opposing ideas are presented in this, in this parable using three, three sort of comparisons. There are those who hear and do, and there are those who hear and do not do. There are the wise builders, and there are the foolish builders. And then there's a house that stands in the midst of the storms, whether they are the storms of life or the storms of judgment, and there's a the house that falls with a great crash in the midst of those storms. This imagery of the houses and their foundations is preceded in Matthew 7 by two other images and a warning that we will revisit again at the end of our series. In verses 13 through 23 of Matthew 7, Jesus speaks of two gates, the narrow gate and the wide gate. One leads to life, the other one leads to destruction. He speaks of the good tree and the bad tree, or good fruit and bad fruit. And then he delivers a warning concerning the importance of obeying what we've heard. The parable of the wise and foolish builders is meant to put an exclamation point 
at the end of these three passages. If we want to enter into the abundant life, the purposeful life that Jesus offers us in the kingdom of God, we must build our houses on the firm foundation of Jesus' teaching. When Kim and I lived in the Netherlands years ago, we discovered that in Dutch, the word hear and the word obey are the same word. The word hear and the word obey are the same word. So there is a sense, in Dutch at least, that you have not truly heard something until you've also obeyed it or done what it's said to do. The same is true in Hebrew. Now, the New Testament is written in Greek, but Matthew and other writers also knew Hebrew. In Hebrew, the, right, the, the word for hear is the same as the word for obey. It's like when you say to your child, it's time to clean up your room. And maybe you have to say it two, three times. And finally you say it again, it's time to, t- to clean up your room. I told you to clean up your room. And they say, I heard you. But we all know that what we're after when we ask our children to clean up the room is not that they hear us, but that they do what we said, that they obey. The aim of the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is not that we hear it, not that we analyze it to death, but that we do it. That we seek to live our lives in in a new way. And that we know that either way, whether we do it or we don't, either way there will be consequences. Either our houses will stand against the storms that come our way or they will collapse. But wait, doesn't this mean that Aren't you saying that then we're trying to, we have to earn God's forgiveness? We have to, no, Scripture is very clear on this. God's forgiveness is a free gift, and God loves to give that gift. Forgiveness is the gift of God, and he loves to give that gift. The question is, however, if we are not seeking to obey the teaching of Jesus, have we really heard him? If we are not seeking to obey the teaching of Jesus, have we really heard him? Do we actually know him as well as we think we do? Or more to the point, if we are not obeying him, if we are not trying to live up to his teaching, what might we be missing out on? If we're not trying to live according to his teaching, what might we be missing out on? If we want to accept and enjoy Jesus' invitation to abundant life, we need to think carefully about everything that comes before these last few verses in Matthew chapter 7. Scholar Scott McKnight puts it this way. The fundamental aim of the sermon is to present Jesus and his kingdom vision for his kingdom people. And the only acceptable response to this sermon is to embrace him, to accept the challenge. That means to do what he says. McKnight then goes on to lay out before us two more passages from Scripture that I want to conclude with this morning. In 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 to 17, we read, All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. He adds, McKnight adds, that while this passage refers to the Old Testament Scriptures, it applies all the more to the New Testament. Quote, the aim of the scriptures is to transform us into people who are ready to do every good work. The aim of scripture is to transform us into people who are ready to do every good work. Later in our New Testament, Jesus' own brother James gives us a vivid picture, another way to look at the wise and foolish builders from our passage today. In James 1, 22 to 25, he writes, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. 
Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his or her face in a mirror and after looking at themselves goes away and immediately forgets what they look like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. As Andy, Andy Stanley has said, if a guy tells you he's going to die and be raised again to new life and he does it, you should probably do everything that guy says. The parable of the wise and foolish builders at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is so straightforward that it almost doesn't need any explanation, unlike an awful lot of Jesus' other parables. What it does need, however, is a response. What it does need is a response. The reformer Martin Luther said about the Sermon on the Mount that its doctrine is a good and precious thing, but, quote, it is not being preached for the sake of being heard, but for the sake of action and its application to life. If the good news we celebrate this morning is that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus empower us to live purposefully and abundantly in God's kingdom here now and forever. How shall we respond to that good news? I hope the answer to that question is fairly obvious by this point in the sermon. We respond to this good news by making obedience to Jesus a way of life. We respond to this good news by making obedience to Jesus a way of life. For Jesus is the way, Jesus makes the way, and Jesus models the way to live a good and beautiful life. Jesus is the way, Jesus models the way, makes the way, and Jesus models the way for us to live a good and beautiful life. That does not mean that we're always going to do it perfectly. There is always grace and forgiveness for where we fall short, and we will. We do. I do. Less than 12 hours ago, I blew it. The people at a certain restaurant got our order wrong, and I was not a happy camper. We'd gotten all the way home with the food, and what was I going to do now? My meal wasn't there. Let's just say I wasn't the most Christ-like version of myself. We're all going to blow it. And the God's grace and mercy are there to forgive us. But the grace that saves us, the grace that forgives us, also has the power to transform us. The grace that saves and forgives us also has the power to transform us so that we can live our lives purposely and abundantly as God's kingdom people even now. Seeking to live our lives according to Jesus' teaching is not about living life correctly. It's about enjoying life fully. Seeking to live our lives according to Jesus' teaching is not about living correctly. It's about enjoying life fully. Where do we start? In his book, The Good and Beautiful Life, James Bryan Smith tells a story of the late basketball coach John Wooden, who won 10 NCAA championships over a 12-year period as the coach of the UCLA Bruins, including a record-breaking breaking, uh, seven in a row. His philosophy, however, was not to win and not to be better than the team they were playing. His philosophy, according to an article on a basketball website I read, was not about winning but about being prepared. Quote, Coach Wooden's coaching philosophy is no different than his philosophy on how to live. In a career so focused on competition, winning and losing, he never coached his teams to try to be better than their opponent. He simply taught his teams to try to prepare themselves to the best of their ability to be the best they could be, and the result would take care of itself. 
His most effective teaching tool was his consistent example. That paragraph is loaded with wisdom. It's loaded. John Wooden simply taught his teams to try to prepare themselves to the best of their ability to be the best they could be. The same could be said about Jesus' call for us to follow him, to be like him in the world. The first day, many people have heard this, the first day of basketball practice each year, Coach Wooden would spend an hour teaching his players how to put on their socks. Why? Because not doing so would lead to blisters, which would in turn affect their playing. It was about the little things. It was about the basics. The same is true in our journey toward Christiformity. It begins with the basic, basics. It begins with, with practicing the spiritual disciplines. They are the equivalent of learning to put on our socks correctly, of preparing ourselves to the best of our ability and with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, knowing that if we do so, the result will take care of itself. The kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven, and it will do so through us. Similarly, in his book, What If Jesus Was Serious?, author Sky Jatani likens the relationship between preparation for life itself, preparation for life and life itself, to the British television show Downton Abbey. Their uh, fans of the show know there are two worlds. There is the world upstairs of the lords and lady who live their lives with as carefree as you could possibly imagine, mostly with ease. And then there's a world downstairs where behind the scenes, beneath the surface, the servants are doing all the hard and frenetic work to make the kind of life possible upstairs that's going on. Sky Jatani writes this, quote, Downton Abbey is not unlike Jesus' parable about houses and foundations at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He emphasizes that it is the unseen, buried part of the house that determines its ability to endure, not the glamorous qualities above the surface. If you are reading the book, The Good and Beautiful Life, along with us, and by the way, this is a 12-week series. There are 12 chapters in the book. This is chapter 1. We're not preaching from the book. We are relating to the book as we go through it. So if you're reading the book along, this week's chapter 1, chapter 2, so on for the next 12 weeks, one chapter a week. But you know that at the end of the chapter, every chapter, there is a soul training exercise, Jim Smith's uh, term for spiritual disciplines, the basics, the hard work that must go on beneath the surface if we are to live the good and beautiful life that, that Jesus describes and wants for us. So each week we will include in the Bible app live event soul, the soul training exercise for that week. We won't write the whole chapter in there. We'll just give you a, a section of it so you understand what you're doing. So I encourage you, if you are not currently reading the book along with us, to go into that Bible app live event and look for that exercise as one way to respond to this good news this week. Another way to respond is to join us for Kingdom Conversations each week during this series. We're experimenting with something here. Beginning at noon uh, each Sunday, including today, we're going to be on Zoom for a time of fellowship and conversation around this morning's sermon, around the chapter in the book, if we get to that, if that's what people want to talk about uh, from The Good and Beautiful Life. The whole thing is 30 to 45 minutes, and we'd love to have you join us. You can find that link on our website at ecclife.net slash events, and again, in the Bible app live event. One other possibility for responding to this, in fact, I, I would hope that everybody would do this, not just once in the coming 12 weeks, but several times. This week, for starters, sit down at some point in the week, at least once, and in one sitting, read through the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 1, all the way through. You can go to 8, chapter 8, verse 1, which is where we find that the crowds are falling. Just read through that. Think on it. Just let it hit you as a way to prepare for this series. 
Would you join with me as we close in prayer? Good and beautiful God, we thank you for the example we have in Jesus. We thank you for his teaching, for his life, his death, his resurrection, for the gift of your spirit, for the gift of your word, for the gift of one another, that all help us to live lives according to the teaching of Jesus. We ask, Lord God, your blessing on us as we enter into this journey of exploring the Sermon on the Mount. We pray, O oh God, that as we come through this, that we would leave this journey a little more formed, a little more um, enriched, a little more Christ-like than when we began. We pray that you would receive all the glory, all the honor, all the praise. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.